0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Geoffrey Chaucer is one of the most famous figures in English literature. The 14th century writer is widely lauded for his major works such as The Canterbury Tales and Troilus and Cressida. However, A dark shadow looms over Chaucer's story, a possible case of sexual assault. Dr Ewan Roger of the National Archives and Professor Sebastian Sebecki of the University of Toronto have just published some findings that might give us a new take on this. David Musgrove caught up with Ewan Roger to find out more.
2: Okay, so today I am talking to Dr. Ewan Roger, who is a Principal record Specialist for Medieval and Tudor Records at the National Archives in London. And we're going to be talking about Geoffrey Chaucer. Ewan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here. Good, good stuff. Um, so, Chaucer. Chaucer's been in the news, uh, and we're going to come on to that in a second. But before we get on to the specific topic, um, perhaps you could do me a favour and just remind our listeners, I'm sure they know, who Geoffrey Chaucer was uh, and why he's an interesting character
4: yeah of course so geoffrey chaucer perhaps best known to everyone as the kind of father of english poetry and english uh, medieval literature uh, the author of the canterbury tales and many other works and poems uh, but at the same time as he's doing his his literary side of things we have hundreds of records relating to his life and times and biography here at the national archives because Throughout his career, he was a courtier, he was a soldier, he was a civil servant, he was a customs officer. So we have hundreds of insights into his life and the institutions that he interacted with, such as the central law courts and government. And so that we can piece together all these snippets to tell us the the real Geoffrey Chaucer, who the man was behind these kind of epic poems and stories. Brilliant. And in terms of his life,
2: he was he was alive in the, in the 14th century, the second half of the 14th century, really.
4: Yes. So he's around, yeah, the second half of the 14th century, probably dies around 1400. Um, and a lot of the records we have for him are from the 70s and 80s and 90s when he's at that kind of peak of his civil service career.
2: Brilliant. Okay, so that's helpful because it takes us straight into the into the next bit. So, um, the the story that we want to talk about relates to the 1380s, 1380s specifically. Um, and there's there's Chaucer experts, Chaucer specialists, have long been interested in some documents that relate to that particular year, um, and they're all about a lawsuit which Geoffrey Chaucer was involved in. And there was also another character, a certain Cecily Champagne. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sure you can uh, you can tell me if I'm not. Uh, and they were involved in a lawsuit. Uh, she was the daughter of a prominent London. Baker. Um, And that lawsuit has has attracted lots of interest. I wonder if, before we talk about what you found, if you could just give us the background of of what we know about that lawsuit before your research was published.
4: Yeah, so the first bits of this lawsuit came out in 1873, when Frederick J. Furnival was looking through and trying to find Chaucer Life Records, the start of a massive biographical project for the poet. And he found on the back of a a close roll, so this is a role on which were copied orders out from the crown to individuals, so to sheriffs and so on. And on the back of this role, there was what's called a quick claim or legal release between Chaucer and a woman named Cecily Champagne, who released Chaucer in this in this document from all actions concerning her raptus, de raptu meo. Now, raptus in medieval legal terminology can mean a whole range of different things. It can mean abduction, it can mean rape, it can mean something anywhere in between the two ends of that spectrum or um, or around that spectrum. And so people have been, since 1873, 1873, have been trying to work out what this document means, what happened between Geoffrey Chaucer and Cecily Champagne. Um, and this was reinvigorated, this debate, in 1993, when a second copy of the quick claim was discovered, this time enrolled in the records of the court of King's Bench. And this time, without that word raptus in it, it just released Chaucer from any uh, felonies, trespasses, any other debts, accounts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was very formulaic language. And so that was enrolled only a few days after the first. And it has led to this whole debate about, was Chaucer convicted or accused of raping Cecily Champagne? Did he abduct her, potentially, to try and marry her off to someone, potentially his ward? And did he try and cover this up by the second enrolment in the Court of King's Bench with that one word, missing? So that's
2: that's why this is so controversial isn't it? because there's there's a question mark over over the character and actions of of this very famous poet as a result of these of these two lawsuits. Now what you've done is you've um, you've made some further discoveries which um, slightly well substantially change the way that lawsuit uh, looks. So do you want to go into uh, into the story of what you found and and ideally how you found it would be interesting.
4: Yeah. So this came. Um came about in a kind of slightly random way. It was, we never set out to try and find these documents. I think it's the, the main thing to try and say. Um, it was just, we were having a chat, my co-author, Sebastian Sebecki and I, um, who's the co-author of this research. We were looking, we, we've been talking for many years about Chaucer life records and the potential to find more. And we've, we've come up with snippets here and there. And we were looking at the second quick claim. So the King's Bench quick claim, just over a coffee, we we're looking at an image of, of this document. Uh, because Sebastian had noticed that the handwriting changed halfway through the entry um, and we wondered that's the point at which the quick claim itself begins and we wondered if perhaps this was indicative that either there was an extra document somewhere in the records that had never been found possibly the original quick claim that's copied into these documents or if perhaps Chaucer's attorney or confidant had somehow altered the role to get rid of that 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 word um the word raptus. So as it turned out, that was a complete red herring. But it got me really curious as to whether there was more to be found. Because with the King's Bench records, there are lots that are very widely available. You can see images of them online. You can look through transcripts. You can look through indexes of them. But sitting behind all of that, there's a wealth of material that's never properly really been looked at. Um, and it was not looked at during the, the, the process of the life records project because it wasn't available. It's only been me- been made available in the last 50 or so years, uh, thanks to my colleagues in the cataloging team here. So I was just curious and thought, maybe I'll go and have a look and see if I can find that original quick claim if it survives. Um, and these files have to be viewed in our collection care department here at the National Archives because they're quite fragile they're on the original cat gut thongs, so they're literally strung onto old bits of of gut, um, and they, which becomes very fragile over years, so they they have a tendency to fall apart if you don't handle them carefully. So I was trawling through here, and suddenly the name Cecily Champagne jumped out at me. But the problem was, it wasn't something that I was at all expecting. It wasn't a copy of the quick claim. It wasn't any further proceedings between Chaucer and Champagne it was a warrant of attorneys. So it was a warrant by which Cecily Champagne appointed two attorneys in the court of King's Bench. But they weren't against Geoffrey Chaucer, they were against a man named Thomas Staunton. And they weren't to do with abduction or rape, but an action under the Statute of Labourers. So the Statute of Labourers is brought in in reaction to the Black Death. Uh, In 1349, we have an ordinance of labourers. And then that's put into statute in 1351 in the Statute of Labourers. And this is a statute by which the Crown sought to control wages and um, labour and how much people could charge and who they could work for. So it it was a whole raft of different clauses within this legislation. But the one that Cecily Champagne was countering in particular was a claim that she had been in Thomas Staunton's service and had gone... To work for someone else before the end of her contract was up. Um, so that I, I remember looking at this in our collection care lab, and just being just what thinking. Okay, this is not at all what I was expecting. How on earth do I reconcile this with what we we know about Chaucer and Champagne? Um, and then the name Thomas Staunton kind of pinged a, a bulb in the back of my head somewhere that I, I recognised that name. And going back to look at the the Chaucer life records, I realised that actually we knew about a connection between Chaucer and Staunton, not in 1380, but in the previous legal term, so Michaelmas term 1379. Um, And in that case, we knew that Chaucer was appointing an attorney against Staunton at the same time. So there was a link there in that they were both appointing attorneys against the same man, but it was a step further in that one of the attorneys that Chaucer appointed and that Cecily appointed were in fact the same man, uh, Stephen Del Fowle. So we know, we, we kind of had this view that they were perhaps linked. And I went searching then to try and find even more evidence for what was going on. Um, because by linking these two cases, we had a much earlier timeframe for this. Whatever happened, we had an earlier timeframe than we'd previously been expecting. And so in the the Court of King's Bench, you get what are called original writs. So any case that is begun in the court has to be begun by an original writ. You go to the chancery, you purchase a writ, there's a certain number of types of writs, you choose your action, and then that gets sent to the defendants to appear in court. So we knew that if there had been a case brought in that court, and it seemed likely that there was, there would be an original writ there somewhere to be found. And because the date was now earlier, if you had gone looking for it previously, it, you wouldn't have been looking in the right place. So we, we now had a targeted time period for which we could search. And looking through all the various files for that period, we found the original writ, which um, was brought by Thomas Staunton against both Cecily Champagne and Geoffrey Chaucer, a charge under the statute of labourers. Um, and it was claimed that Champagne had been working for Staundon and had gone to work for Chaucer instead before the end of the term of the contract. So they were co-defendants in this case brought by Thomas Staunton.
2: Right. Let, let me stop you there because A, you've just talked for quite a long time and I'm sure you need a drink. But B, so this this is absolutely fascinating. We often talk on this podcast about historical detective stories. And what you've just described—that does sound like a proper detective story. It sounds—I'm interested in the historical process here because it sounds like there was—you got lucky, you saw something, but you wouldn't have known that there was something there if you didn't have the background knowledge about what was going on with Chaucer. And I, I suppose I wonder: do you consider, do you call yourself an archivist or a historian or a bit of both? And were you uniquely placed to access this because you work for the National Archives and you have this massive treasure trove uh, uh, available to you?
4: Yeah, so it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting process. So, in terms of whether I'd call myself an archivist or a historian, I would very much say I am a historian working in an archive, and I think that's important for two reasons. One is that the only reason we were able to to identify these these records is because you kind of need that ingrained system that a historian has of how these institutions work, how the courts worked, but at the same time. It requires the kind of archival know-how of knowing where things are to be found. And that's something that, again, it's my my colleagues in our cataloging team, they do all that hard work. I'm kind of riding on their tailcoats at this point and um, finding these things that they've worked hugely, they've worked in, uh, for a long period of time to make them available. So, I'm, yeah, I would very much say historian and give them all the credit for that kind of cataloging work. Um but in terms of looking through the files, so I should say that these, these files are now all available for anyone to come and look at. Anyone can, even if they have to be viewed in our collection care lab, anyone can make an appointment and come in and have a look. Um, likewise with the the writ bundles, they're they're kept in our off-site storage, but anyone can order them up and come in and have a look at them. I suppose in the first instance, looking through the um trying to find that original quick claim. That was, I would say, targeted serendipity is the phrase I tend to use. Um, I know there might be something interesting in there. Let's have a look through and see what can be found. And then you putting that information into action, I was able to do a much more targeted search um, to try and really pin down the original writ and to find that. So it's it's not an easy process. It does require an understanding of the courts and how they worked and how their um, documents functioned. But it is something that anyone with the time and inclination can do.
2: Uh, And the facility to read medieval Latin.
4: Yeah, I mean, these are very formulaic documents. That's actually not as difficult as it might seem. When you're looking through these bundles, it's almost a case of your kind of mind detaches itself and you're just looking for names to jump out at you. Uh, And it's quite lucky that both Cecily Champagne and Geoffrey Chaucer have Unusual names; they're not a John Smith, for example. Um, But yeah, they are very formulaic. So you don't even need that much Latin to be able to pick out documents of interest.
2: I'm going to disagree with you there because I did I did my PhD using medieval Latin, trying to understand Glastonbury Abbey records, uh, and uh, I struggled massively with the paleography. But I think that's just because I'm not very good at it. But anyway, right. Um, Just come back to that for a second. We will return to the Chaucer story. Uh, They just. One thing I'd really like to know, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, is you mentioned these these um, these documents that are bound up with cat gut. What do they smell like? <laughs>
4: um, they actually they don't they've been there for centuries, so they don't smell of animal as such. the The, the predominant smell, I would say, is coal dust and coal, uh, because they originally used to dry these records in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries by putting them next to a coal fire, which great in terms of drying them. But they are, this is the one instance I would say where dusty archives is actually sometimes appropriate with these records because they have got all this coal dust on them. Also, one of the few times you might actually need to wear gloves, but that's more for keeping your hands clean than for um, handling the documents safely.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: And that's a huge amount of new material that's never been looked at for whether that's looking for literary figures, looking for historical figures, looking for just your everyday man or woman in the street, it's a resource that's never been looked at. And there's more to go. It's a really exciting prospect. It's slightly terrifying at the same time, but there's a huge amount still to be found.
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss.
2: Right, okay, let's get back to the story. So so you've, you've found that uh, Chaucer and Cecily Champagne are now engaged in a lawsuit together versus this other character, Thomas Staundern. Um, How does that change the understanding of the original writ that you were talking about and the, and the raptus uh, word that uh, that you mentioned to start with?
4: So we had to try and obviously work out what how this all linked together. We had, on one hand, these charges that get brought by Staunton, and then on the other hand, you have these two quick claims and trying to work out how this all, all pieces together. Um, so we tried to work out in the first instance, what, under what circumstances Champagne may, may have left Staunton's service and joined Chaucer. Um, and we, we figured out there were roughly three very broad categories. One would be that she was physically abducted by Chaucer, taken from Staunton's service into his own. Secondly, um, this idea of what's called procurement. So in which case, she may have been offered higher wages, for example, and tempted or poached out of Staunton's service into Chaucer's. And the third mechanism is that she simply left the first service and went to go and work for Chaucer instead. So we, we tried to think about these three options. If there had been a physical abduction, and I would say we can't entirely rule this out, but if there had been a physical abduction, you would expect um, another original writ to survive. So the usual legal tactic pursued in such cases is that Employer, employer A, so Staunton, would pursue a charge against, uh, under the Statute of Labourers against Champagne, but would pursue a charge of trespass, and it's trespass viet armis with force and arms, against Chaucer. So you'd normally have this dual um, litigation going on simultaneously. Now, we don't have that with Chaucer and Champagne. So while it's plausible, there's no documentary evidence there to suggest that that was the case. If she had left Staunton's service and joined Chaucer's, then Chaucer is still liable for receiving her. She's still liable for joining Chaucer's service. But there's no um, charges around leaving Staunton's service that might have happened. And in between those two options, there's this idea of procurement, and in the 14th century, in the late 14th century, they don't really know how cases of procurement should be prosecuted. Should they be classed as contract disputes? Should they be tr- classed as trespass cases? And th- they're not really sure. There's a lot of debate amongst the justices at this time. So what we think is happening in these with these two quick claims is that actually they're trying to, they're, they're releasing Chaucer from any, actions concerning champagne's departure from service now they're still both liable to charges of retention so that's the second half of the process but we see them as um relating to this departure from service and using the language of abduction to represent that physical transfer transfer of champagne from one household to another Um, we, we we certainly can't rule out any violence, sexual or otherwise, in this process. But as we've we've kind of laid out in the article, in the findings of this, we think that procurement is the most logical way that these quick claims fit in. So they're essentially saying, I, you, Chaucer had no part in Champagne's departure from service, and so after that, they can only be charged with that move into Chaucer's household. It's extremely, it's an extreme legal grey area, and it's extremely kind of complicated to work all of this out and i think that complication is potentially reflected in the documents that are being produced at this time and so in that reading the king's bench quick claim in particular we argue is it's that quick claim it's that release it's that idea of raptus and the language of raptus but brought into the legal terminology of the king's bench by champagne and chaucer's attorneys in that process okay so, so you're reading this
2: now as uh, essentially uh, uh, a labour dispute between these two men, uh, uh, relating to the, um, the, I guess, the challenging employment situation at the time. And I, I guess just to contextualise that a little bit more, you mentioned this goes back to the to the statute of labourers. So this is we're only thirty odd years. Um, after the, the full impact of the Black Death and, and the terrible um, uh, toll on human life that caused, uh, some people say, up to half the population are killed by this. And that obviously massively impacts on the availability of the labour pool. So is that what's going on, that, that it was very hard
4: to get people to work for you? It's also, it's very hard to prove any of this. We see, because all of these contracts, there are no written contracts at this time. It's all verbal contracts. And we see there, there are loads of other cases of uh, incidences under the Ordinance and Statute of Labourers. And actually, the writ that, Chaud- that Staunton brings against Chaucer and Champagne has the words, the ordinance, at the bottom in Latin, indicating that this is a kind of a go-to writ that you can get. So that there are clearly issues around Labour and how Labour is managed and how people move from one contract to another. But in a lot of these instances... It simply comes down to statements of fact. So I, I said I'd work to you till next Tuesday, and I left on the Wednesday. And the employer's saying, actually, you said the week before is when you you would work, or the week after is when you would work to. And it, it's it's debates, disputes around those points of fact in a lot of instances. Um, and of course, the, the year after this, this kind of discontent, this labour problem, will come to the fore as part of the Peasants' Revolt, the, uh, the ideas around the enforcement of the Statute of Labourers are, are very much a part of that that wider national conflict as well.
2: Okay, great. And for listeners, um, if you want uh, an in-depth podcast about the Statute of Labourers, there is one in our back catalogue, and there's also several on the Peasants' Revolt, so lots of other listening mass. Now look, so um, what do we know about Cecily Champagne? What what service would she have been providing to Geoffrey Chaucer and indeed to Thomas Staunton?
4: So it's a really interesting question. It's one that we don't really have a concrete answer for because um, this case never actually goes anywhere. Staunton, at some point in Easter term 1380, uh, says he's not prosecuting the case anymore. And so we don't get those details provided in in the plea rolls of the court, in the official records that we might have. Um, there are loads of different potential here. We shouldn't just think of servants as being low-class um that kind of low low status servant they could be housekeepers they could be um good cooks so we, we actually see disputes where people are poaching good cooks from someone else's household because they want to have good food so we are there's a whole load of different possibilities here i think the potential that she's a housemaid of some sort or looking after the household as a whole is potentially likely but we can't we can't really say for sure because this never goes anywhere, and it's actually the whole idea about what we know about Cecily Champagne is a really interesting one, because until now people have just focused on Chaucer, the the, the poet, the man we know about. No one's ever, until until our recent research, has thought to say, okay, who was who is Cecily Champagne? Who? What do we know about her? What life records can we find for her? And so, as part of the um, the special edition of Chaucer Review that all this is published in, we actually. Um, have included the first full biography that we know of for Cecily Champagne, which actually puts her on a similar social status to Chaucer in in medieval London. So it's an interesting thought process of who, wh- how does this this, this servant master relationship work, and should we start thinking about it in a new in a new light?
2: Is there do you imagine there's any more that we will learn about Cecily Champagne? Are there more documents in that in that dusty archive that you talked about that might um elucidate things further?
4: I think for any medieval person, Chaucer, Champagne or otherwise, there's so much that is yet to be found. There's so much that is is not easy to search, is not necessarily the the simplest thing to look through. So I think for for any of these people. There is more to come to light. It's slightly more tricky with medieval London, because we we suspect, for example, that there, there may have been secondary litigation in the London courts, but their records don't survive as well as those on a national on the national scale. So there's more to be found, but there's also, I think, lots that has been lost um, over the previous centuries.
2: Right. So um, you you did this research and uh, and you published it in the Chaucer Review as you said and uh, and uh, one of your colleagues no doubt put out a press release about it and you got an awful lot of people interested in this and there were some headlines which uh, were along the lines of Chaucer exonerated of rape was that is that a correct reading of what you have have been uh, have, have found?
4: So I think it's really important that throughout this. We are we are saying we're not trying to exonerate him. We are we cannot rule anything out. What we have found in our in our research is that there is a strong likelihood that this one case was not about rape. Now that obviously doesn't mean that Chaucer wasn't a rapist. We can't we can't say that. What we can say is this one incident, we think it it looks to be much more focused on the Labour dispute. And as part of this, we we knew this was going to be potentially, uh, it was going to attract attention. We knew it was going to be controversial. We knew it's, it's a 150-year-old dispute, uh, this debate that we, we're talking about here. And so throughout the process, Sebastian and I have been really careful to that we wanted to include different voices around all of this. And we invited, along with the journal editors, three leading feminist chaucerians to respond and work with us to to contextualise and situate our findings. And we hope it's been a really great collaborative process. I think that's one thing. I think we should work more across these kind of interdisciplinary lines between historians and archivists and English literary specialists. It's been a really collaborative, supportive process. And we've been bouncing ideas back and forth for the last nine months Or we've been trying to keep the secret and work out what it all meant. Um, and so that has been a really good positive experience and i would hope this the the research actually opens up more lines of inquiry that we can take forward rather than just saying we're closing this down we want we're we're trying to exonerate him i think we want to open up ideas about what medieval labor contracts looked like social and uh, legal what what we can talk what we can say about chaucer's writings now that we're not necessarily thinking of him in this context we're thinking of him in Champagne as co-defendants. How do we put, think about his, his writings on, on Labour and peasants and the, um, in the context of both the Peasants' Revolt and the Statute of Labour? We hope it's just going to be a, a, an ongoing conversation rather than trying to shut this down.
2: Brilliant. Okay, last thing. And you, you have slightly answered this in your question, in your answer just now, but what, what does this tell us about Geoffrey Chaucer now? How does this move us along in our understanding of Chaucer? And one thing specifically, is there any sense that he was looking to protect his legacy within these within the these legal proceedings? Is there any is there anything to 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 sort of point to that sort of line of thought?
4: So it's a really interesting question about what this means for choice of the person choice of the the man who lived and worked and died in medieval london um i think one thing we should say is that whenever we look at the biography of a character and life records more generally we are only ever seeing snippets we are seeing bits here i always think about it as if someone looked at my um the receipts of my wallet or a tax account for a certain year what that would tell them about me and it's i think it's that's That's the the heart of this. I think almost we're taking him out of this debate and and having the opportunity to have that wider conversation about his writings without being without this idea of um, champagne over, kind of lying over all of this, and and not allowing us to to think about his writings more generally. I think for Chaucer as a man, it also grounds him in medieval London. In these documents, they. They are, at the same time, both very impersonal legal records, but very personal records in that they provide details of connections between individuals. They provide us with details of, for example, Chaucer's sureties, the men who say he will turn up in court when he ter- when he is supposed to turn up. So we get all of these views. Um, in terms of Chaucer's legacy, I think that's something where... This, this this change in language between the two quick claims in the context of this dispute and in the context of the courts, I think we can now rule out that that is an attempt by Chaucer to protect his own legacy. I think what we're actually seeing is the faceless bureaucrats of the courts taking a document and taking language that... So in, in the first quick claim, if it, we're seeing this as Champagne using the language of Raptors to, to represent a form of transfer a service to represent a form of movement of abduction in some way then that is being sterilized is the wrong word but brought into the legal language and the, the confines of the king's bench by the clerks the attorneys of that court and it's being standardized in the process rather than chaucer having doing that himself
2: excellent um thank you you and i've run through all my questions um final thing though what what should i have asked you what have i missed
4: So I think one thing to bring out of this is that these new records have been available for a while, but they've never really been looked at. But there's loads more that this is an ongoing process of bringing to light new records that are potentially not listed particularly well or haven't really been um, made accessible in the way that we would like to make them available. Um, So recently at the National Archives, there was a project called the Unknown Treasures Project, which brought out or made accessible for the first time over 5,000 bundles of writs, not for King's Bench, but for the other central law court, the Court of Common Pleas. And that's a huge amount of new material that has never been looked at for, whether that's looking for literary figures, looking for historical figures, looking for just your everyday man or woman in the street. It's a resource that's never been looked at. And there's more to go. There's It's a really exciting prospect. It's slightly terrifying at the same time but there's a huge amount still to be found. And we did just a kind of quick look through some of these records and we found new records for Geoffrey Chaucer, for John Gower, for John Skelton, just by quick targeted searches in these records. So I guess the main thing that I kind of want to end on is that there should be excitement about looking for for material in these finds. There's so much still to find. I can think of at least two or three incidences in Chaucer's life where I know there will be records somewhere. And it's just a case of working out where they'll be and then going to look for them. Brilliant. Well, maybe you'll come back on the podcast
2: once you've found something else else out and uh, and we can chat again.
4: Yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) That was Dr. Ewan Roger, Principal Records Specialist at the National Archives. If you want to study the open access material in the Chaucer Review, the link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt.